So, Will. Yes? Picture this. I'm picturing. It's a lovely weekend evening. You have a few friends coming over. You've set out your bottles of wine, your bowls of snacks. Everyone shows up. You're in a great mood, and you pull out the game. It's a game night. What is your game that you are pulling off the shelf? I mean, there are obviously like a couple of different directions I could go with this. One of my favorite game night games, because it's very social and not super long, is to play Liar's Dice. You mean not Risk? Look, there is a soft spot in my heart for Risk, but I also have not played it since I was 18. I think I haven't played it since I was like 16 and I got in a tie. (laughs) That's not a tie. That's called giving up. It is. There were, I think, four back and forth rounds. Everyone else was out. It was just me and my sister. And on my turn, I would conquer every country except for one that she would hold and my turn would end. And then on her turn, the exact same thing would happen in reverse. And we just kept going back and forth exactly like that until we said, the Schaefers have conquered the world. We're giving up. There you go. Um, But yeah, no, I love Liar's Dice. Um, which, if you're not familiar with it, is played in a key scene in Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest. And, you know, it's a it's a bluffing game. There's an element of skill, at least in persuading people. But there's the right amount of luck in it, too. So that one person can't just dominate it by, like, having put the most hours into it. If their rolls still stink, then they're still going to have a stinky round. Uh, but it resets for new rounds often enough that you never get stuck in a hole the way that you can in, like, Risk, for example. Did you have the officially licensed Liar's Dice? So, I grew up playing Liar's Dice with, like, my extended family. We would play it at the beach, for example. We'd all, like, sit around a big table at a beach house and play. But, yes, the first and only official Liar's Dice set I have is the officially licensed Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest one. With, uh, instead of just, like, nice cups for rolling dice, they are plastic. They look like the barnacle-encrusted cups from Davy Jones's ship. And on the dice, instead of the number one, they have a skull and crossbones. I had those. I loved that game. The skull and crossbones really sells it. That's how you know they're That's pirates. how you know it's a pirate game. We played that a lot. My parents really liked that game, too. It's a f- It rules! It's one of the funny games where it's like a licensed movie franchise game that people bought and actually was good. Well, yeah, because, like, they didn't add dumb rules related to the movie. As far as I know, I never read the rule book that came with it. I was just like, yeah, now I have a Liar's Dice set. But, like, a lot of the times they'll be like, you know, I had Pokemon Monopoly growing up, which was fun for me because I loved Monopoly and I loved Pokemon. But it, like, added weird abilities that you got based on whichever Pokemon mover you were using. Yeah, I guess when the game is as simple as rolling five dice in a cup, you can't You know, speaking of that, that I'm pretty sure... They have made licensed versions of Yahtzee, and I don't know what weird stuff they add to that. That's fair. Those definitely have some weird rules. There's got to be something where, like, you can roll a sixth die, and it's got Mickey Mouse on half the faces or something. If you roll all Charmanders, you get to, like, burn the dice of another player. Right. (laughs) That is a great game. We definitely played it as former roommates at a game night that we hosted. Oh, for sure. I used to bring it to, like, game nights in college, too. I would just bring a sack of dice and count on there being solo cups. Uh, yeah. We played it at bars, too. In China, at least. I don't know if we did it in college, but it's very popular in China. And a lot of bars just have dice and cups for you to use. And so you walk into bars, and there's just, like, rattling dice sounds everywhere. I love that. Let's do that. 
It's also very annoying if you're not playing the game. Well, sure. I have never done this. It did always feel to me like a game that lent itself very well to being a drinking game. Yeah, it definitely is played as a drinking game. You, like, drink every time you lose a die. Yeah. And then you, like, take a drink if you call someone's bluff and then you lose. Yeah, exactly. Um, What about you, though? What's your game night move besides, like, Quiplash? So my recent addition to my gaming catalog is a little game called Mysterium. I don't know if you've a heard great, of A great game. And so we've been playing that at, like, every game night because the cards are so funny. It's a Halloween tradition in my mom's family. So the way it works, it's kind of like clue in a way but trippier because you play as psychics and you're trying to solve a murder through visions sent to you by a ghost so one player is the ghost and they have a deck of cards with abstract images and then they have to use those abstract images to get the psychics to guess the suspect room and knife right so each player effectively has their own clue game going on where they need to get Mm -hmm. who where and with what and If you're the ghost, which I was the last time I played, you're just handing them abstract artwork trying to nudge them in the right direction. And there's one card that has a weird little hedgehog guy wearing a hockey mask sitting on a flower. And I named him Reggie, and he is my friend. And I have considered framing that card and keeping it as art. And you should just having every time I pull him from the deck, if I'm the ghost, I like put the little card in an empty slot on the wall thing so that I can just look at him while I am the ghost. Good. So that's one. I also love code names. I don't own it, but my friend brought it over last time. Great game. It's very fun to play with someone you know well where you can just kind of hone in on the weirdest abstractions that they know you would make. I mean, that was like you and me as a monikers team during my bachelor party. Right. And it's like me and my friend Julia for some reason, are both... I think it ties to some Midwestern roots or something, but we were playing, and I used the word warm, and she picked ham, and everyone else in the room is like, when is ham ever served warm? And I was like, what are you talking about? Your nice spiral-cut honey-baked ham every Easter. Yeah, no, I mean, that checks out. See, my issue is I just don't associate honey-baked ham with Easter as much as I associate it with the opening night releases of Star Wars movies. That's a very specific reference that I don't think I understand. Oh, I think I've told told this story before, which is just that when The Force Awakens came out, this is when I was living in Florida in a group house uh, with a bunch of teachers. One of them decided to make an entire honey-baked ham to like have a Christmas dinner, but it was the night before we were all going to leave town for Christmas. So we had an entire ham that we then had to deal with. So we brought it in a Ziploc bag as snacks that we were pa- who were passing just uh, sliced yes. ham up and down the aisle. And then the next year for Rogue One, he announced that it was a tradition and did it again. That feels like one where an usher walking in would smell it and you would get caught. Well, we sure didn't. That's good. And the next year at The Last Jedi, I did not have ham, but the girl sitting next to me did recite along with the entire Greatest Showman trailer. So I did have a unique experience. I mean, it's no man eating spaghetti out of a plastic bag at a 4DX showing that Claire experienced. And the kicker was the second bag of spaghetti he pulled out. I will never forget this story, mostly because of the second bag of spaghetti. I don't know why that's so much weirder to me. Bringing food to movies is great and good and 
You know, I love to just surprise someone when I pull my sandwich out of my backpack and start eating it during In the Heights or whatever. R.I.P. to the food court outside the movie theater I went to in Singapore, where they had, like, You've talked about this. Bubble tea you said it was within... Subway. Didn't you say it was on the other side of the ticket taker? Mm-hmm. So it was, like, inviting you to bring the food. Yeah, you were encouraged to bring the food into the movie theater with you. So I would eat Crazy. my little Subway sandwich and drink my bubble tea while watching the movie. I... Do want to give a shout out to Gestures, of course. Okay. A favorite of yours. The game of split second charades, which is essentially just timed charades. We played it with my grandmother over Christmas, and it was very funny watching her try and act these things out because she was committed, but just could not, like, the timer ticking was really, like, really setting her off the stress level. Have you played Pictionary? There's a lot of Pictionary in oh, this movie. Yeah. Of course I've played Pictionary. Yeah, I played Pictionary. Um, I, you know, I have also played various Cranium games, which owe a lot to Pictionary. Yeah, I like Cranium a lot. Did you ever play Telestrations? That one's fun. I recognize the name, but I don't know it. I don't think I've played it's it. It's like the game of telephone, but with drawings. So you draw something on a little pad, pass it to the person next to you. They have to, on a separate page, write down what they think the drawing is then pass it to the next person who has to draw what they wrote down. Okay, yeah, I've played basically the same game, uh, but it was called Scriblish. Yeah, and then at the end, you know, you have to see how far away, whether the person managed to guess or it was completely different. Yeah, a good time. And then you have people like my cousin who just made up something she thought would be funny to see people draw. I mean, a, a valid way to play if a losing strategy. But as much as we love games... I will say, we do not love games as much as the people in this week's movie. I thought you were going to say, we don't love games as much as we love movies. That's also true. And we also don't love games as much as we love the love. Which is the name of this show. A Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm Yay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world. Is this Rachel McAdams' cutest performance? We will get into it. And also, are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is the main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, because we talked about Rachel McAdams two weeks ago for the Family Stone and decided we should do it, we are talking about the 2018 mystery, yeah, mystery comedy Game Night, starring Rachel McAdams and Jason Bateman. This might be her cutest performance. I think, yes. This is just Rachel McAdams being a person. Like, with no twist. Like, she's not Regina George. She's not, you know, a star-crossed lover in the notebook. She's not the angsty teen of the family stone. She is just a nice woman whose defining characteristic is that she is competitive at games. Yeah, and and very sweetly so. Right. In a fun way. I'm looking at her filmography now, and I think the only possible competitor would have to be Eurovision. Yeah, but even that... It's like, there's just, you know, she's playing a bigger character, too. Right. In this, she is just a human. She's just a human who accidentally shoots her husband through the arm. Yeah. I've seen this movie four times. You've seen it four times? I've seen it four times. I saw it in theaters. I watched it on cable one time, and then I bought the Blu-ray, and I watched it this past January, and now it's November 30th, and I watched it again. And every time I see it, like, I feel like I latch on to a different line reading. 
And this time it was Rachel McAdams doing like a toodaloo and yelling barkeep to call over the bartender and then proudly ordering a vodka tonic and realizing halfway through that it is not a complicated drink. (laughs) Yeah, every time I watch this movie, aka for the second time, there is something different that I appreciate. Like, I don't think I noticed Billy Magnuson's performance as much last time. Oh my god, he's so funny. He's so funny in this, but I mean, the main things I just remember from the movie, I'd forgotten he was even in it. Because what I remember is the arm shooting and then all of Jesse Plemons' performance. Which is so good. Jesse Plemons, king of the Best Picture nominee, Jesse Plemons. Uh, It will be sad that this year he is in zero Best Picture nominees after an incredible run. Is this a thing you're aware of? How many was he in? So here's Jesse Plemons going backwards, Best Picture run. So he, in 2021, he's in The Power of the Dog. He also gets an Oscar nomination for that. For 2020... He is in Judas and the Black Messiah, which is the Best Picture nomination. The year before that, he's in The Irishman. The year before that, 2018, so the same year as Game Night, he is in Vice. In 2017, he's in The Post. 2016 is a year off. But then 2015, he's in Bridge of Spies. So there's like a six or seven year period where he's in a Best Picture nominee every year. And it takes until 2021 for him to get a lead role. Yeah, or to get a nomination at all. I mean, some of those are pretty small. Like The Irishman is basically a cameo yeah and i mean it's not like he was gonna get a nomination for vice with no although he is at the core of like one of the most rancid parts of that movie yeah it's not his fault but no i hated that movie yeah i think besides that the only other best picture nomination he's been in is the master but like that's a crazy run that is wild was he in anything this year uh he's in a movie called windfall um that i don't know yeah, I don't know. Uh, looks like it came out on Netflix in March, and I entirely missed it. And that's how Netflix released his movies. Um, right, he was supposed to continue the trend because he is, like, one of the main characters in Killers of the Flower Moon, but that has been delayed to next year. I guess to this year, by the time this episode comes out. Rip his run. But that is a movie that I am hyped for. So, Game Night. <laughs> game Night, yes! So, you had not seen this since theaters. I don't think so. And I think we watched it in theaters together, if I remember This correctly. was, a, like... A- a classic movie pass movie. Yeah. It came out the same day as Annihilation, talking about other movies we saw. And, you know, in theaters at the same time are things like Peter Rabbit, Early Man. Like, this is when you and I were just going to see anything. I had such low expectations for this movie, too. I remember going in because, I mean, the adult genre comedy that's mostly anchored by celeb, like, by movie stars is just. In 2018, the world was dire for that kind of movie, and I only went to see it. Not like it's much better now. Well, yeah, it's not much better now, but... I would argue worse. Yeah. I feel like there's a brief rom-com moment that is honestly fading away again. I think, think to be fair to that, it's doing all right. They're just, you know, Ticket to Paradise is still doing fine in theaters. Yeah. I guess as we record. I assume by January, Ticket to Paradise is no longer in theaters. But, I mean, we got The Lost City this year. Which is a very similar, like, surprise quality adventure comedy. Yeah, I would say, again, like, honestly, Ticket to Paradise is, like, better than it needs to be. It's not great, but it's perfectly solid. Yeah. This movie was a delight. Like, a delightful surprise. Because it helped my expectations were low. Because I walked away like, this is one of the best movies ever. But it's really funny. Yeah, this is a movie that I go out of my way to show people. 
it's just an example of what this genre can be because it's not like it's setting up a sequel there's no hints at like building out a world it's just a ridiculous premise that they built a movie around that is very funny yeah and like there is not even the like you know you take a movie like free guy that i think is like largely charming but it does have one or two sequences when they're like, and we can use a bunch of IP because we're owned by Disney. Yeah, this is like an anti-IP movie. If this movie were sponsored, it would be sponsored by like Parker Brothers. Yeah, they just play more branded games. Uh, you know, if you told me that this was sponsored by like Parker Brothers or Milton Bradley, I would believe it a little bit. Just because early in the movie when Max and Annie go over to Kyle Chandler's house and they say, we brought a few of our favorites because they weren't sure he would have any games. And they brought Scrabble, Life, and Clue. And it's like, if these people are this into games, Scrabble, Life, and Clue are not their favorite games. No, but they're the audience's favorite games. I know, but just, I mean, look, at this point, everyone has had a chance to see Glass Onion and to hear Benoit Blanc go on about why Clue is a bad game. Our suspects, motive, opportunity. Hey, this kind of looks like that Clue no Yes, yes. Yes, you must be really great at Clue, huh? I'm very bad at dumb things. My Achilles heel. Ticking boxes, running around, searching all the rooms. It's just a terrible, terrible game. Well, my students love it. I still love Clue. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, the one that's really egregious in that stack to me is the game of life, which is Candyland with money. Yeah, that is a game very specifically for children. And when you play it as an adult, it is boring and also disheartening. You're like, hmm, I made no choices. Yeah, I really, uh, you really don't get a lot of options in the game. But isn't that life? <laughs> My cousins are playing life on Thanksgiving. And I just like, they're all, you know, like in college or whatever. And I just like came over to like glance at them playing life. And one of them was showing me that he was going to be making much less money than his brother who had a higher salary. And I said, look, when you're playing life, it doesn't matter who gets the most money. It's just who gets to the end first, which is true in the rules of the game. But it's also a dark thing to say. Well, you don't die. You just go to a retirement home. Yes. However, <laughs> saying it feels grim. Yeah. I also always, we always played that the winner was just whoever ended up in the millionaire's retirement home. Yeah, of course. That's the only way to play it with any kind of stakes. Yeah. Yeah, that one I agree is the most egregious. Clue and Scrabble, especially Scrabble. That one Scrabble's fine. fits for sure. No problem with Scrabble. There's not too many people to play Clue, though. Right. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying this doesn't make sense, Mark. There's also way too many people to play Scrabble. I mean, yes. Speaking of movies about games, is it on your radar that John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who directed this movie, are also directing next year's, I guess this year's, uh, Dungeons and Dragons movie? I did not know they were directing that. I know the movie exists. Yeah, it's coming out in March. It's Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, and it stars... Chris Pine as a bard who's leading a team of, like, scoundrels to steal a thing. I mean, if it's game night, but with IP, I'm on board. Yeah, I'm interested because, you know, given this movie, I had kind of assumed that it would be a movie that maybe they might go with, like, okay, we're going to make a movie about people playing Dungeons and Dragons, especially now that, like, Stranger Things has kind of prepared audiences to watch that kind of thing. But it looks like it is just a movie set in a Dungeons and Dragons universe doing a quest. Yeah, that's definitely the vibe of the trailers. Absolutely. And look, maybe we're being like marketed too weirdly and they're going to do like a Lego movie twist. But 
it's the kind of thing of when that movie was announced, I was like, let's go. And then I've now seen the trailer a couple of times in theaters, and I'm like, look, I'm going to see this, but like, we'll see. I will say, rewatching Game Night last night sort of reinvigorated my interest in Dungeons and Dragons because I think all of the action sequences in this are really well staged. Like, the kitchen fight scene with Kyle Chandler and the kidnappers, the Fabergé egg wonner through the Bulgarian's house. Like, I think that's all really cleverly and clearly staged. So it made me a little more optimistic for the action in the D&D movie. Yeah, I mean, they managed to incorporate jokes into action sequences very well. Like, the car going all the way under the plane, funny. Also cool. Also cool. Like, it's both. Because it's really, yeah. And then the cutting back where Kyle Chandler is fighting off the kidnappers and cutting back to the people on the couch, just, like, eating their popcorn, thinking it's a show. Also very funny. Right. And the fact that they have this clear choreography means that you feel like you can actually track the fight as opposed to it just being sequences that you're watching while you wait for the plot to get going again. Mm-hmm. So, so that made me kind of optimistic about this going forward. Yeah. I am cautiously optimistic about the Dungeons & Dragons movie. I wonder if they didn't do a, like, actual people playing the game movie because they knew they couldn't compete with the community Dungeons & Dragons episode. There's that and, like, I mean, just the Stranger Things of it all. Yeah. I haven't seen anything besides season one of Stranger Things. I watched the first episode of season two and was like, yeah, I'm good. Yes, that's actually what happened with me, too. But I have seen the Dungeons & Dragons community episode, like, five times. Yes, uh, which is unfortunately no longer streaming, but I have the DVDs. It's on Hulu still, I think. I don't I know that I was watching Community, like, two days ago. Yeah, it is, it is not there. It got pulled for what was ruled blackface, but... Oh, that specific episode, right. Yeah. I, I don't think that's really what's going on in that episode, but it is not my call to make. Yeah. I forgot about that part. I always forget about that part. Yeah. But uh, Game Night. So, as I said, this is directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. And I think part of what's so surprising about this movie is it is better than you would expect coming from the two of them. Like, their previous directorial effort was the Ed Helms Vacation reboot. Ooh. Which, to be fair, I have not seen. Yeah. But that is part of the problem. (laughs) Right. And then they were mostly... uh, screenwriting duo they wrote horrible bosses a movie that is fine the incredible burt wonderstone cloudy with a chance of meatballs 2 um they are two of the six credited writers on spider-man homecoming oh my god and they were attached to direct the flash for long enough to maintain a screenplay credit if that movie ever comes out we will see on that one i wonder um as of november 30th 2022 the release date for the flash is June 23rd, 2023. So far, there has been no trailer. Oh my god. (laughs) Which doesn't mean that it won't come out in June, but... The lead, we'll see. It is a real cursed movie. It went through like five directors who kept joining it and then leaving. A whole bunch of writers. Its star is, at best, troubled. Didn't they kidnap someone? Allegedly. Allegedly. And of course, there's the fact that it is set in a cinematic universe that its studio has committed to not continuing. Oh, they officially aren't continuing it? Well, it's the like it's the weird thing with DC, right? And I'm sure we talked about some of this on our Batman Returns episode that we have not recorded yet. But, you know, Ezra Miller started starring as the Flash in Batman vs. Superman. Like he is one of the like Snyderverse characters. So DC and Warner Brothers have said like 
we are not making another Zack Snyder Justice League movie, however much he wants it. Like, one of the executives at Warner Brothers at the time the Snyder Cut came out was like, we're glad that Zack was able to complete his trilogy. <laughs> like, politely saying, this is it. So, it's like, they're not going to pick up the meta-narrative of it. They are doing stuff that is not set in continuity with it. Like, obviously, there's the Joaquin Phoenix, like, Todd Phillips Joker stuff. But then, you know, it, it's hard to tell where any of this is going, especially since the cancellation of Batgirl. Because Batgirl was made with Michael Keaton as Batman mentoring Batgirl. And then the Michael Keaton Batman appeared in Aquaman 2. But then when they shelved Batgirl, they were like, also, this is too confusing in Aquaman. So they reshot that with Ben Affleck. Henry Cavill, for years, had been like, I'm done playing Superman. But then appears in a post credit scene of Black Adam, and they announce Henry Cavill is coming back as Superman. Like, genuinely, I don't know what DC is doing. What is but happening? A year ago, a year ago, they were like, we're done with all this. And now, at least the new leadership of Warner Brothers, and especially at DC, they now have uh, James Gunn and a producer whose name is escaping me, have taken over as the head of DC Films. And they've been like, there will be one Batman. We are not doing a million different things. We're not doing three Jokers or whatever. Um, I don't I don't know. I, do, I don't know what's happening with any of this, let alone what's happening with The Flash. But I did see Black Adam, so I can comment on that. I mean, I assume they'll probably pare down to just the Joker movies, and then they won't use the Joker in the Robert Pattinson Batman movies. Oh, that's the other thing. Right. They have the Pattinson move. That's what I was forgetting. I was like, I know there's a hit that's out of this continuity. The Pattinson Batman is three hours and a huge hit. It's a good movie. And it's like... And it's completely separate continuity from the fact that they keep bringing back Ben Affleck, who I think is good as Batman, but they're like, one Batman, but we're also running both of these movies. Wow. Okay. Too much is happening. I can't keep up. Tune in several weeks ago for our Batman Returns episode for more on Batman. Um, Game night. (laughs) Game night, yeah. I do know that this movie was kind of a surprise hit, if I remember correctly. Yes, and part of that is just because of what you were saying about, like, comedies that are, are very much, like, targeted at adults. And, like, even some of Daly and Goldstein's earlier work, like, you take a movie like Horrible Bosses, that's a movie that adults can appreciate, but it also feels like it's playing to kids. Like, it's got Charlie Day and Jason Sudeikis, like, doing goofy stuff. And I could be wrong, but Game Night is a movie to me that feels like its audience is adults. Like, all of its concerns are, like, very much concerns that, like, adults have, as opposed to just, like, generic stuff. It feels written for the, like, 30 to 50 crowd. It really does. I mean, the main thing is, like, fertility issues. Which are not really, like, the concept of fertility issues are not really played for laughs at all the way they would in, like, a Judd Apatow movie in 2005. Yeah, it's just, like, a couple is discussing options because they're struggling to get pregnant, and it's not played for laughs, it's taken very seriously. Right, like, the jokes in that scene are more that the doctor wants to get set up with Kyle Chandler. Right, like, the doctor is a bad person, but the actual struggle is treated well. Yeah. So the crazy thing about, like, where this movie comes from is it comes from John Fox, who's a producer, called up the screenwriter Mark Perez and was like, I've got an idea for a picture. I assume he said movie. But he's basically like, I've got an idea for a movie. Title, Game Night. And the writer Mark Perez is like, cool, what next? And the producer goes, I don't know. You figure it out. Oh, my God. (laughs) And that's where I'm like, I should be, I want to be a producer, right? 
I think it takes a lot of work to get to the level where you can just say a title. But once you get there, it sounds great. Mark, when when you saw Glass Onion, did you see a trailer for a movie called Plane? That looks like worst case scenario movie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like, there's some stuff in that that looks interesting. Like, you know, Greenland, pretty good movie. I like Mike Coulter. But the title of that movie functions like a punchline to that trailer. Ah, I'm sure it's going to treat the, like, struggle in the Philippines so carefully and respectfully. It's not going to be awkward to watch at all. It's going to be very tasteful. Okay, I do, like, I wonder if they're going to go for the cheap joke about the Mindanao Islamic Liberation Front. Because there are newspapers that, like, use the acronym in the Philippines. It just doesn't feel like the right tone for the movie, but maybe they will. Yeah. But so, uh, John Fox calls Mark Perez and says, I've got an idea for a picture. Game night. Go nuts. And Perez did a lot of press around the release of the movie, and he talked about how his inspiration was movies like uh, Three Amigos or Tropic Thunder, where people think they are in a movie, but are actually in a real-life dangerous situation. This is so much better than Tropic Thunder. Never seen it. It's, like, almost depressing to have such a bad movie named as an inspiration for such a good movie. Well, like, that's just improvement, then. Yeah, I guess. It's building on a foundation of sand, but in a way where you actually have a stable building. So, uh, Perez said that he actually wrote the role for Jason Bateman and called the Max character Jason in a first draft. Little on the nose. Yeah, whatever. If it helps him keep it in his head while he's writing, who cares? You could just control F later. Unless you get a dwigged situation. Unless you get a dwigged. But so then Perez and Fox sold it to New Line with Jason Bateman attached. Like he came on board, they helped develop the script together. And so around 2013, when they sell it to New Line, Jason Bateman is set to produce it, which he does, to star in it, which he does, and also to direct it. Has he directed before? Um, you know what? He might have directed like a horror movie. Yeah, he directed a movie called Bad Words. Um, which is listed as a black comedy film. It stars Bateman as a middle-aged eighth-grade dropout who enters the spelling bee. Okay. Um, and something called The Family Fang, which was written by David Lindsay Abair, author of Rise of the Guardians. Um, and it looks like he's in pre-production on a movie called Dark Wire. Hmm. Don't know what that's about. So yeah, so he's uh, he's directed a couple of things, and more so, he's directed a bunch of TV. Um, he directed a decent chunk of Arrested Development. He directed a lot of Ozark Wow, 44 episodes of Ozark. Yeah, I mean, look, that's that's his show. Yeah. Look, there there are people who love Ozark, and I think I will never see it. My dad enjoys Ozark. I've heard good things. Um, but so, so they sell this script, and at that point, it's just kind of sitting at New Line, not really getting going. It looks like Bateman, at, in his role as producer, like kept hiring other writers to take a crack at like honing the screenplay during that period. You know, from the interviews I read with Mark Perez, who has the only screenplay credit on the movie, he seems like a pretty chill guy and, like, was very chill about the fact that, like, the movie was rewritten a decent amount from when he wrote it. He's like, look, I understand how Hollywood works. I've done rewrite jobs. It has the shape of the movie that I wrote, and it feels like the stuff that was added was funny. So I got no beef with this. And he still got paid. Right, but, like, it seems like he has a very healthy attitude about how all of this works. Uh, But anyway, in 2016, after... The Ed Helms Vacation movie. Warner's offered Daly and Goldstein a bunch of scripts that they could look at to direct next. And they said they wanted to do Game Night, but only if they could rewrite it and if they could direct it. 
And they had worked with Jason Bateman before on Horrible Bosses, so he was open to that. And they claimed that they rewrote basically every line of the script. And so, like, the basic structure of the movie was still there, which is why Mark Perez has sole screenplay credit. But they say they rewrote pretty much all of it. Everybody agrees that the big thing they changed was the Jesse Plemons character, who was just kind of more conventionally, like, goofy and obnoxious in the original draft. And in this one, he is just marvelously creepy. That change plays a big part in making this movie work. Oh, absolutely. There's a great anecdote that the direction for Clemens on set was play it like you're Michael Shannon, which is a detail that I love. He And you know what? That is an accurate description. It's a perfect description of what he does. Just this like... Menace. This quiet intensity. Menacing figure. As he holds the dog from Widows. Is it the same dog? It's the same dog in the same year. In March... The dog is in Game Night, where it gets to lick up some blood. And in November, it's in Widows, where it gets to be part of a quiet and devastating reveal. That scene with the blood is so horrifying. It's so funny. My wife looks away during it. My favorite part is when he's wiping down the dog and pulls away the t-shirt. And it's a t-shirt with Debbie's face on it. Just every every detail of Plemons' house is so funny. The framed photo of a Game Night he's no longer invited to. Yeah. and. One of the funniest things about this movie to me, too, is the amount of blood that comes out of Jason Bateman with no ill effects. Well, that's part of what's crazy, too. And, like, again, I've seen this movie four times. So I'm, like, picking up different stuff this time. But, like, I find it so funny how long his hurt arm is a gag, like, when he's trying to play Jenga. But as soon as he gets the information off Plevin's computer, the arm is not a problem anymore. Yeah, I mean, this movie does not care about making sense. Except that that's a thing they talk about a lot when you read interviews, especially with the directors, because they're like, no, we wanted this to be a movie that wasn't just funny. You could actually, like, track the capers they're going through and be like, oh, yeah, like, they are going to all of these places for a real reason, which I think is true. The arm just feels like the one thing that they drop. Yeah, it's definitely intentional, the amount of blood, but boy, do they underplay getting shot. It's things like that. It's things like, you know, the plane wheel getting hit with so little damage to the car. Ah, who cares? Yeah, it's like stuff like the who cares of it. But the actual, you are right that the capers all make sense. Like, everything they do tracks a certain logic. I just, I find this movie so fun to watch. It's a great thing to throw on. It's 93 minutes. Yeah, it really does not overstay its welcome in any way. Which I think is key to it. Like, honestly... I think if this movie were one sequence longer, it would be too long. It's a very compact movie, and it works. Like, one more set piece, you would lose interest in the action. Yeah, definitely. Um, Like you said, though, the movie did pretty well in theaters. Particularly, like, it had really strong word of mouth. Like, it held really well from week to week. I mean, we told a lot of people about it. I think you and I caused several people to go see it in theaters. Well, with their movie passes, of course. Yes, of course. As we were all driving billionaires into bankruptcy. Uh, My sister got the email today, November 30th, to join the test pilot in Atlanta. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I should send you the, um, like, the information. She sent me a screenshot of the email. That would be amazing. It's a weird credit system. Are they still doing the thing where you have, you, like, watch ads to get credits? Uh, no, you just pay, like, $15 a month gets you 34 credits, 
$25 a month gets you a certain number of credits. And then any matinee is 10 credits. Any, like, an evening movie on the weekend is the most. I think it's, like, 20. And then an evening movie on during the weekday is 15. Okay. And do you know, like, what kind of range of theaters they have as part of it? No, she didn't have that included. Yeah, I mean, look, ever since, like, the heyday of MoviePass, people have been talking about variable pricing, like, pricing different showtimes at different rates, which we obviously already do to a certain extent with, like, matinees. But I've been kind of surprised that that has not caught on more. I mean, maybe with this MoviePass pricing model, if MoviePass succeeds, this feels like a way they can make money. Like, this one feels like it makes more sense. Because almost certainly not everyone will use all of the credits. And it prevents people from using too much money. That's the idea. Like, they can't lose infinite numbers of dollars. The best MoviePass stories were people who were like, I just like movie theater popcorn, so I would buy a MoviePass ticket to get into the theaters and buy some popcorn on my way home. No, the funniest are people that would buy a ticket to use the bathroom. That's true. That's funnier. I've heard multiple people say Black Panther, they would buy tickets, just pee to support Black Panther, and then leave. (laughs) Wow. Well, maybe that's why Black Panther uh, made $111 million the week that Game Night opened. It's just all bathroom people. Oh my god. That's the second weekend of Black Panther. It's still over 100. Jesus Christ. This movie did break 100 million. Internationally. Internationally. Yeah. Also, in the... Like, hanging out at the box office. Peter Rabbit, past podcast movie at number three in week three uh, with $12 million. Annihilation in fourth, also opening this week. And Fifty Shades Free, hanging out. And then down in eighth, still going strong, The Greatest Showman in its 10th week. Why, why did people like it so much? Remember how fun it was, though, every week to just, like, check in on The Greatest Showman as it was just, like, climbing in its box office after opening, getting slammed by critics and, like, destroyed at the box office by The Last Jedi, and then just, like, quietly chugging along for months? They need to release a movie that's called something like The Greatest Showman, but it's a horror movie that's actually about how evil P.T. Barnum truly was. I mean, what's crazy is there is a P.T. Barnum musical that's about what a bad dude he is. And Jim Dale won a Tony for it. My God. P.T. Barnum was truly despicable. And one of the, like, first ways he made money was by using the courts to, like, manipulate slave law so that he could basically own a slave in free states. Um, We should maybe do The Greatest Showman on this podcast. <sighs> but then I have to watch it for the first have time. Have you seen it? You've never I've seen never it. seen it. Oh, I've seen it twice. Maybe we can do an episode where you just tell me. No, because the romance is kind of the craziest part of it. Like, it's kind of fun. Not that, like, the Zac Efron Zendaya stuff is, like, okay. It's the Hugh Jackman, Michelle Williams stuff that's funny. Yeah. Ugh. If we must. I think we need an audience poll. We need at least one outside voice saying we have to watch The Greatest Showman. Yeah, so if you have never been on this podcast and you think we should do The Greatest Showman... Send us an email at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Or if you've never been on this podcast and you think we should not do it, send us an email at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. And we will take your advice into consideration. If Twitter still exists in January, tweet at us at lovethelovepod. And we will take that into consideration. But in the meantime, we should discuss Game Night and not a terrible movie. Yes, let's, let's talk about this good movie. So every week we talk about the only thing in a movie that matters, which is its romance by breaking it down into five points. And Mark, 
because it was your idea two weeks ago that we just do game night and throw it on the spreadsheet. Um, you're in charge of our points for game night. I think this is our fastest turnaround between mentioning a show on the podcast and releasing an episode about it. Mother to Fireproof is pretty close. But, yeah. Anyway, point one. The movie opens, as all good movies should, at Pub Trivia. A great start to a, a movie. A great start. Okay, okay, this is getting embarrassing. So we need to focus, because this isn't a game. It literally is. Bill, do not test me right it's now. Like we're down to two teams. So for double points, what is the name of the purple Teletubby? Tinky Winky. You're both correct. He always carried a... Red purse. Yeah. And he loved me. Big hugs. I know. I'm Max. Annie. The movie opens with two overly competitive team captains who are on teams wearing matching t-shirts. So actually, I was going to ask you this, Mark. Who do you think was the first to buy a captain t-shirt? Was it Jason Bateman or Rachel McAdams? Because I think one of them had it and the other one saw it and decided they needed it. I don't think so because you really get the sense the way it's filmed that this is the first time they're laying eyes on each other. At least that's how I took it. I take it as it's the first time they've really interacted. But they would have to know each other as trivia rivals. Maybe. Like know of each other at a distance. Even. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the movie really thought about it that hard because it is filmed as a love at first sight. Like, they are making eye contact for the first time. Yes, for sure. Unless it's like the rules of this bar is you have to have t-shirts. Which would be weird, but maybe fun. I tried to see if other teams had, like, a captain t-shirt and matching shirts, but it's never made clear. I really choose to believe no. Yes, I agree. I think it's best if it's just these two dorks so they are both too good at trivia there's a tiebreaker i think i don't understand the rules of this bar where you submit your answers by yelling them yeah it leads me to believe the writers have never been to a real pub trivia i mean i think really it's just like more dynamic in a movie yeah the scene is like 30 seconds it is but it's still it's just like what the rules are so unclear and you and I play so much trivia. I get, yeah. I ran a trivia game at my wedding reception. Yeah. We have a high bar for trivia portrayals in film, I guess. But in answering the final tiebreaker question, they make eye contact. You get a very cute smile on Rachel McAdams. And Jason Bateman is also there. And then you cut immediately to them just hardcore making out on the train. Pretty great. Which is a great cut. Going from trivia to making out on a train, like, that's where I'm like, this movie gets me. Yeah, so they're making out on a train, and then basically we cut to point two, which is the montage that builds up their relationship. Two words. Bill. Overweight. No. Single. Out of work. What the fuck? Harry. Uh, Carrie. Mary. Mary. You. Me. Marry me. Ah, We got it. We got it. (laughs) Annie? Will you? Will you marry me? Yeah. Is that a yes? That's a yes. I'm really happy for you guys. Right, yeah. We see them having game nights with each other's friends. And then ultimately, Jason Bateman proposes via Pictionary. No, charades. Charades. Proposes via charades. Because I think that's the one where they're really mean to the one friend who doesn't show up yes. again. Which is also... A- it's the guy... 
It's the cat neighbor from Only Murders in the Building. Yes, it's the cat neighbor from Only Murders in the Building. He is on her team originally. He's on Annie's team in the opening scene and is made fun of. And then during charades, Max points at this guy and Annie just lists like sad, unemployed, lonely. lonely. And then he just goes like, come on. And then you never see him in the rest of the movie, which is a good touch because it's like in a lot of movies... That person would continue to be there, and you're like, why are you friends with these people that are terrible to you? But at this, it's like, oh, this is the last straw. He's out. Yeah, he's done. (laughs) He's done. We see their wedding where they play Dance Dance Revolution. Instead of a first dance. Which is cool. Yes. And then we also see them settling into their routine of game night with, like, the same crew, which is the two of them. Billy Magazine. Winston from New Girl. (laughs) I don't remember any of the other names. Well, it's Billy Magnuson and uh, Kylie Bunbury as Michelle, who is like, she was on Under the Dome and Pitch. Pitch was that movie about the woman baseball pitcher. Oh, you've seen, she was on uh, the Peacock Brave New World, which you watched. Yes, that is what Nick and I knew her from. We were like, oh, we recognize her. Yes, you were the only people who watched Brave New World. It wasn't bad. It was entertaining. That's what you said. I I believe you. (laughs) No one will ever see it. And believe well, Especially me. now that it's been canceled. Yeah. Yes. And then Lamore Morris is the name of um, Winston from New Girl. It's a good little crew of comedy people. Right. And Billy Magnuson at the beginning has like a rotating cast of attractive young women. Like Instagram models, right. basically. And this kind of culminates with a visit to a fertility doctor, as we talked about, where they are struggling to conceive. Uh, the doctor, who, as you pointed out, is bad, is observing that stress can lead to problems with sperm motility. So they're having a whole conversation about how Jason Bateman, Max, always feels stressed when his brother is coming into town because they've always been very competitive and his brother always, like, knocks him off his feet. His brother sucks. We'll get into this. Yeah. But his brother <laughs> I is... I would say evil, perhaps? Yeah, he is evil. But this does kind of segue us into point three. Which is where they have a game night with his brother in town, played by Kyle Chandler. It is incredible. Kyle Chandler is introduced in this movie driving a sports car that is just blasting Billy Joel's Captain Jack. And so even after being told to keep quiet because they don't want their neighbor to know that they're hosting a game night. Because Jesse Plemons, their creepy cop neighbor, used to be a member of the crew because they were friends with his wife, Debbie. Who also does not appear in this movie. You are wrong there, sir. Did you watch all the way through the credits? Maybe I didn't. At the very end of the credits, there's a scene where Debbie gets flirted with by the Denzel impersonator. (laughs) Oh, that's great. At the gas pump. (laughs) Good. Yeah, so he's no longer the Gru. So they ask everyone to sneak in, which leads everyone to climb in through the window. And this kind of gets to the fact that, you know, we're focusing on Max and Annie, who are the leads. And I think very nicely, like, co-leads of the movie. But the movie has other couples that are also doing relationshipy things throughout, where you've got Kylie Bunbury and Lauren Morris. They're having their spat, which is a, comes out of a game of Never Have I Ever, where she reveals that she has had sex with a celebrity, despite the fact that they've been together since middle school. And then the other one is Billy Magnuson, who has been bringing around all of these, like, Instagram models. But to this game night, to prove a point, he brings Sharon Horgan and declares, can't always judge a book by its past covers. His uh, 
lines to establish that I am stupid are better than most movies that have a stupid character. The jokes are so much cleverer. Yeah, it's like such a smart way of handling a stupid character. Well, in part, it's the brilliance of it. It's a character who doesn't know he's stupid. Yes. I do love how he repeatedly refers to her as British, (laughs) even though she's Irish. I love Sharon Horgan, and she's great in this. Yeah. The scene where they're like, why are you still here? Towards the end. (laughs) Because they're like breaking into a criminal mastermind house. And they're just like, you don't have to be there for this. And she's like, Like, well, we don't know you. (laughs) I'm She's like, well, I'd be really sad if I saw all of you died in the newspaper tomorrow. And Billy Magnuson's reply is, do you read the newspaper? Yes. It's things like that. A great movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Yeah, watch Game Night. So Kyle Chandler shows up to the Game Night and is extremely terrible. They're playing charades. And he tells a very embarrassing story right before charades start so that Max whiffs it. Right, yeah. He does undermine him all the time. And this really energizes Annie because she's like, oh my gosh, like he does undermine you all the time. This is terrible. Like we've got to take this guy down because he's messing with my ability to have a baby. And so then Kyle Chandler invites them all to a game night at his place that he's renting while he's in town the following night. Yeah. He is allegedly like a VC who invested in Panera, but he is actually an arms dealer. General black market dealer. Yeah. A smuggler, I guess. So Max and Annie go into the game night, like, ready to go hard, win, cheat, let Max feel dominant so that he can be fertile. Yes, and Annie even does propose cheating, because the game they're playing is a faked kidnapping. Led by Jeffrey Wright. Of course, turns into a real kidnapping. A good premise! A good premise. And it takes them a long time to figure out that it's real. Which leads to some just very funny moments. I mean, the best one is, like, cheating, not following the riddles. Max and Annie just use Brooks's iPad to track his phone. And so they track him to a bar where he's being held in the back room. And they get in and they're like, oh, this is great. Like, look at all these local community theater actors who are a part of this. Like, all right, barkeep, give me a fancy drink. I know you're not real. They're like... Uh, Rachel McAdams is waving around a gun that she picked up that she thinks is a prop. Just waving it everywhere. It is so stressful. Jesus Christ, honey, where'd you get a gun? No, no, that's the fake gun from Brooks's fight. Oh, yeah. Boy, that looks real. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. Brooks never spares any expense. Yeah, that's true. Okay, follow my lead, huh? Why, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Lead. Any of you fucking pricks move and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! Very nice, honey. Pulp Fiction, anybody, right? It's a classic. We love films. Okay, what the fuck is this shit? Well, you're gonna hand over the keys because we're gonna take my brother. Bullshit. Oh, you know what's bullshit is your bald, ugly face. Ooh, ooh, no, that's personal. Come on, honey, let's just keep it fun. All right, I'm sorry I called you bald, little bitch. Well, that's, again, you know, let the gun do the talking. Okay. Come on. Ah, ah, on your knees. Hands in the air. Hands on the ground. Good, great. Eyes closed. That's it. Get them up. Reach for it. That's right. There we go. All right, hands in the air. Get them up. It's so funny. It's even funnier when she hands it over to Jason Bateman to show off, like, how she wants the child kidnappers pose. to lie on the ground. The child pose. And Jason Bateman is, like, holding it weirdly in his fist, like, not even in a gun. He's just, like, waving it around like it's a glass or something. 
the moment where she also like turns they're holding these people essentially hostage at gunpoint they've removed fully automatic weapons from some of them and she like turns on the jukebox and is dancing and you know that scene is also a triumph of actually having a plan for what song will be in a movie where like it is specifically semi-charmed kind of life and she is singing along and dancing to it as she waves a gun around and it's very funny and it's much more effective than what happens a lot in movies now where they're like just dance vaguely and we will choose a song in post yeah having her sing along poorly is what really sells it and so the whole night they're just like having these, like, goofy adventures very much as a team the entire time. Like, there's never a trumped-up, like, maybe we shouldn't be together sort of thing. It's always, we're a team, we love being together, it's just a question of what exactly our future together is going to look like. Yes, there's no question of them breaking up, but this is an important point where they do, he, Max, questions whether he actually wants a baby. But this is, like, part of what I'm saying about, like, it feels like a movie that's for grown-ups. You know, you said, like, the 30 to 50 range. Where they are, like, happy in their lives and are, like, generally settled with how things are in their lives. And the question is just, like, do they want to add something to it? Yeah, I mean, this is a major change. And so you do want to be certain about it. And Max has been saying that he's certain, but (laughs) through these misadventures, Annie has realized that maybe he's less committed to having a kid than she thought. Yeah. But the thing is, like, if you're going to have a kid with someone, you probably want it to be with someone who will do, like, back alley gunshot surgery on you. The Chardonnay. (laughs) Where she pours wine on it to sterilize the wound. (laughs) It's so funny. I like the detail of her giving him the squeeze toy to bite down on. Because that means that, like, instead of having Jason Bateman yelling, they could just throw in a squeeze sound effect every time. This movie really is one of the, like, it fully downplays how loud a gun is and how much it hurts to get shot. But to the best effect. Where the two of them are also, like, dry heaving as she's, like, about to start sewing up the gun wound. It's it's so funny. But yeah, so they're going through the night. They're a team. Jason Bateman talks at some points about how he's worried that, like, having a kid will mark the end of, like, the cool period of their life. And then by the end of the night, he decides that having misadventures where they almost get killed by Michael C. Hall is maybe not the kind of adventure he wants to have. Yeah. So this takes us to point four, which is at the end of all the adventures... I think they're still at gunpoint when he says it, maybe. But he's like, I do want to have a baby with you. Yeah. And I like that it was never a question of, like, do they belong together or anything. It is a happy couple that makes out on the train, stays together. Even the question about what their future looks like isn't, you know, make or break in their relationship. And that it is resolved. Yeah. It's a thing I so appreciate about this movie. And it's such a simple thing. It also just, like, lets both of them be so much more fun. Because neither of them is ever, like, mean to the other. No, and the humor comes from them loving each other. Yeah. One of the funny things about this movie, too, is, like you said, it's very much, like, a double lead situation. Where they are given pretty much equal time. But the script, because... And not just equal time, but equal jokes. Equal jokes, too. And because the script has his brother, you like, the movie seems like it kind of should be more about Max. And maybe the script is that way. But Rachel McAdams' screen presence is such that she is kind of who you remember more. She just sells every joke so perfectly. And then this brings us to point five, which after everything has gone down, Kyle Chandler is under house arrest at this, like, tiny little house. And he hosts a final game night. And as part of it, during Pictionary, Annie announces her pregnancy. 
by drawing a bun in the oven. A bun in the oven. And then they kiss, and then the movie's over. Hooray! Except we then see in Jesse Plemons' basement a, like, red string investigation board of his plan on getting back into the game night group. Which involves faking his own death in the line of fire. And then you get the credits, and then the very end, like I said, you see Debbie flirt with the fake Denzel Washington. Right, Kylie Bunbury's celebrity that she had slept with, she claims is Denzel Washington. And they have, like, perfectly cast this dude who looks vaguely like Denzel, but is not. Who is a, I think he is a Denzel Washington impersonator. That would make sense. But he's so clearly not Denzel Washington. Right, you know, he's on the level of, like, the George Clooney impersonator in Community, where you're like, I see it. But, yes. So, unlike our description of the Denzel Washington impersonator, do you find the romance of this movie believable? I think basically yes. For a lot of the reasons we've talked about, right? That this is, these are like people in an established relationship who are trying to move forward and having conversations about what that will mean for their relationship. And that even when they have made a decision and largely feel good about it, that there's still some like complicated and contradictory feelings that go with it. Like, I think that makes sense. They also clearly have such strong shared interests. Yeah. And they're nice to each other all the time. Yeah. The knock against it is stuff like, you're surprised that she hasn't seen the extent to which Brooks undermines him before. Although, given the fertility conversations, it's possible she's seeing that in a new light. Right. And I'm trying to think of other, like, unbelievable things. And I guess it's more... I mean, part of it is just, like, the events events. that they are put in are so wacky. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate this? I don't know. What are you thinking? I'm at, like, a 9. I'm good with that. I can call this a 9. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they meet at pub trivia and, like, have that instant connection is a bit dramatized, but it's believable. I have dated someone from trivia before. It is true. But, I mean, the passionate making out, I feel, is yeah, it's much less common in real life than in movies. Yes, that did not happen for me. That's kind of my one knock against it. All right, so yeah, we'll call it a nine. Uh, do you think that these people are dateable? The question is intensity, right? I don't know if I could keep up. Like, honestly, I maybe could, right? <laughs> it's a level of wackiness that I enjoy and a commitment to trivia, which I love. Um, scheduled fun, which I'm all about. Like, the Bateman guy has some insecurities that might be kind of frustrating, but I do kind of feel like Rachel McAdams, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I could keep up. That's fair. Because even, they're both so competitive, and I have a little, I can get a little sore losery at games, and I don't know if I need a partner who brings that out of me. That's fair. Um, It is, of course, not hurting that, as we said, this is Rachel McAdams' cutest performance. Yes. Uh, Do you think that they'll stay together? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? I mean, it's, it probably is Rachel McAdams for me, unless it's, like, Chelsea Peretti might be fun. I was thinking about her, because Chelsea Peretti shows up in this movie, and I think she was, like, super pregnant at this time. Yes. She works for the actual game night company that Kyle Chandler hired. And so they show up. It looks like she's been shot because she has fake makeup on. And like it, a bullet hole like, in her forehead. And it is kind of like, I'd forgotten that scene. And so I was like, did they hire Chelsea Peretti just to play a dead body? But then she does wake up and she is like a character. She gives them the final clue after 
this incredible oh slow God. scene of Billy Magnuson $17. sliding small bills across the desk trying to bribe her. What a different world we live in, though, where he was judged for only having $17 in cash on him. And this was four years ago. And today, realistically, that would be a lot of cash for I most don't carry people. cash. Yeah. Chelsea Peretti, solo card billing in this movie. She's Chelsea Peretti. Yeah. Oh, wait. I have to say who I would date. Um, yeah. I think my answer might be Michelle, Kylie Bunbury. Sure. Because she is just like the most normal, cool one who really is committed to game night, but they never seem to get too crazy about it. Yes. She's just like, it is nice to hang out with my friends. Yes. Now, Will, should there be a game night musical? I mean, maybe? That's what, that was my thought, is maybe. Like... I think we could use more mystery musicals. It's a genre that's so untapped in the musical world. Like, they exist, but there's not enough of them, especially when you consider that, like, because anytime with a musical, you've got to be thinking, like, is this playing to, like, the artsy crowd, or will this be done in a hundred high schools? And musical mystery feels like such a surefire hit for like every high school to be putting it on oh they would definitely make their money back in high school rental fees yeah i don't know i think it could be done well i think it could be done extremely poorly yeah i don't know that they necessarily need to do this but someone should write some mystery musicals just to collect those empty eye checks i would watch it yeah but i think that's about it for game night the game has ended and you, the audience, are the winners because you got to hear this episode. You should watch it if you have not seen it. And if you last saw it in theaters four years ago, like Mark, five years ago almost, then you should watch it again. Definitely worth the rewatch. Um, speaking of rewatches and seeing things in theaters, next week we are talking about the original Magic Mike in anticipation of the release of Magic Mike's Last Dance. I have not seen Magic Mike, so Me I'm neither. excited to watch it. <laughs> I also have not seen it. I'm excited to watch it, and I'm excited that Magic Mike's Last Dance will be in theaters because that was supposed to be an HBO Max movie. Oh, interesting. I saw a trailer for it before watching Glass Onion, and I was intrigued. You know, I'm excited about it. I have heard that the last, like, 25 minutes is just an entire dance sequence. Neat. Like, you basically (laughs) get to see the entire dance show that he puts on with Salma Hayek. Oh my god. A Channing Tatum, Salma Hayek, 25-minute dance sequence. What is this? New York, New York? I mean, you know, Soderbergh did an interview at the end of 2021 talking about the movie where he was like, look, West Side Story is out. So that's changed the game. So you got to raise the bar of any dance sequence you're doing. Well, that has made me even more intrigued. Yeah. So come back next week for the original Magic Mike. And I guess watch Double XL sometime in between. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Those are also the places to let us know whether we should cover The Greatest Showman. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Leaving us reviews really helps other people find this show. Last question, Mark. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from Game Night? Obviously, it's go to pub trivia. I was going to say that, too. That's how uh, my wife and I came to be good friends. Yeah. I mean, it brings people together. It's a communal place to make new friends. But it's also like a thing to do, right? You know, that's what you want for like flirty times is something where even if you don't have something to talk about, you can also be doing a thing. Shyla has just decided that 
it's time to come into the bedroom so she can go to sleep. Okay. So there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Bye.